Let me focus your attention this morning on Matthew chapter 14. I want to look at a familiar story, Matthew chapter 14, beginning in verse 22. I'm going to read down through verse 33. This is that famous account where Jesus is walking on the water toward his disciples and summons Peter to join him by getting out of the boat and walking on the water. Verse 22, immediately he made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. And after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone, but the boat by this time was a long way from the land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, It is a ghost. And they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. He said, Come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid. and Beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying to him, O you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased. And those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. My hope and my prayer is that God would use this very, very familiar story to wreck you afresh and to set you free. Let's pray together. Come thou fount of every blessing and tune our hearts and our minds to see and to savor your amazing grace. I pray, O God, that you would show us your strength that you would remind our unbelieving hearts that you are in fact mighty to save. That once you save us, you don't then move us beyond the gospel, but you move us deeper into the gospel. That we never, ever, ever, ever outgrow our need for Christ's finished work on our behalf. We pray that you would speak this morning clearly and compellingly and convincingly. We pray that you would show us your glory and sweep us off of our feet. And we pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen. I grew up in church, as did many of you, probably. And if you grew up in church, you probably learned, either explicitly or implicitly, something about the Christian life that I am here to tell you this morning is false, untrue. In fact, when you read the Bible more carefully and you begin to see and to discover exactly how the Bible describes and defines the Christian faith in general and the 
Christian life in particular, you begin comparing that to some of what you may have learned growing up, and it paints a very, very different picture. And this is what I want to say this morning. The way that many of us think about sanctification, sanctification is a big Bible word, a big theological word that simply describes Christian growth. What does it look like to grow and mature as a Christian? Well, the way many of us think about sanctification is, quite honestly, not very sanctified. In fact, it's terribly narcissistic. We spend way too much time thinking about how we're doing, if we're growing, whether we're doing it right or not. We spend too much time pondering our spiritual failures and brooding over our spiritual successes. And somewhere along the way, we have come to believe that the focus of the Christian faith is the life of the Christian. We've heard this, okay? Uh, I had somebody tell me not long ago that most of the sermons he heard growing up focused on the Christian and not the Christ. Checklist versions of the Christian faith. Do more, try harder versions of the Christian faith. Christian faith that basically says this, it took God to get you in but it's up to you to stay in. That we needed Jesus a lot at the beginning, but the process of Christian growth is the process of becoming increasingly less dependent on Jesus because we're getting stronger and stronger and stronger every day. We started off desperate people when God saved us, but now we're becoming increasingly competent people. Okay, and so the Christian faith is defined in terms of the individual life of the Christian. Someone who was frustrated with something that I had written said to me not long ago, don't you know that the focus of the New Testament is the personal holiness of the Christian? And I thought, what? I mean, the focus of the New Testament is the personal holiness of the Christian? You might not know the old Karate Kid movie with Mr. Miyagi, but when this person said that, I literally heard Mr. Miyagi's voice in my head saying, breathe in, breathe out, breathe in, breathe out. I am so grateful, okay, that the focus of the Bible is not the work of the redeemed, but the work of the Redeemer. Huge difference, okay? Huge, huge difference. If we read the Bible as if the primary focus is the work of the redeemed, what you do and what I do, instead of what Jesus has done, we will not only miss the gospel, but we will live enslaved lives. We will buy into a version of the Christian life that continually shouts, do more, try harder, it's up to you, get her done. Thankfully, that's not what the Bible says. Thankfully, the Bible presents one hero, and it's not you, and it's not me, the entire Old Testament 
predicts this hero, this rescuer. The New Testament presents this hero, this rescuer. In other words, as you look at Luke 24, Jesus walking on the road to Emmaus with two disciples who were downtrodden. This is after Jesus was resurrected, before he ascended. Joins two disciples on the road to Emmaus. They don't recognize him. God keeps them from recognizing who Jesus is. And Jesus says, why are you so sad? What's the matter with you? And they look at him and they're like, where have you been? I mean, the guy that we were banking all of our hopes in was just killed. And Jesus essentially responds by saying, do you not read your Bibles? And he goes to show that the entire Bible pointed to him. It is possible, in other words, to read the Bible like it is a moralistic self-help manual. Okay, that it is some divine fortune cookie sent from heaven to give us our best life now. We can read the Bible like that, okay? We can read the stories and miss the story. In other words, what Jesus in the road to Emmaus shared with those disciples is you can actually read the Bible and miss Jesus. And that's what happens inside the church. That's what happens behind many pulpits. The focus of the Christian faith is the life of the Christian. It's all about what you do. And far less focus, far less attention is given to what Jesus has done. The truth is, we spend way too much time thinking about ourselves and we justify this spiritualized navel-gazing, okay, by reasoning that this is what God wants us to be doing. Okay, the, the more I focus on me and what it's going to take to improve and get better, the more God is honored. We justify it in spiritual ways. We justify our narcissism. Listen to me. Okay, listen carefully. There is nothing in the gospel and there is nothing about the gospel that encourages me to focus on me. Nothing. I'll say that again. There is nothing in the gospel and there is nothing about the gospel that encourages me, encourages you to focus on you. It is never, ever honoring to God when we take our eyes off of Christ, the author and finisher of our faith, and center our eyes on ourselves. Never. And this is what we learn from this story. I mean, Peter had never walked on water before. I mean, you know, this, was a, this was a new experience for him. He believed that Jesus was who he said he was, and he says, call me and I'll come. Interesting order there. Call me and I'll come. So Jesus calls Peter and says, come on. And Peter, in faith, gets out of the boat and he's doing just fine until he looks down to see how he's doing. When he takes his eyes off of Jesus and he looks down at how he's doing, he begins to sink. And many of you, I'm supposing, guessing, are sinking in the mire of what you have come to believe the Christian faith is all about. You've come to believe that somehow, someway, this whole thing is about me. This is, this is just another 
This is just another self-help tool. This is sort of the Christian version of self-help, okay? This is the, the Christian version of self-improvement. Mark Galley, who's a friend of mine, who's managing editor for Christianity Today, said this recently. He said, um, if, you, if you are a Christian because you want to be changed, that's not love for God, that's love for self. Now, that doesn't mean that Becoming a Christian doesn't change you. But if, if you are, if you become a Christian, if you are a Christian primarily because you want to change, that's not love of God. That's not worship of God. That's love and worship of self. That's using God to make you better. Okay? Now, that's a very, very different picture. Listen to me. <laughs> This is why Jesus came. Jesus came not to make bad people good. Jesus came to make dead people live. And that is a huge difference, okay? A huge difference. I mean, there have been lots of moral reformations that have taken place throughout history, both inside and outside the church. Jesus came, to affect a, Jesus came to affect a mortal resurrection, okay? He came to do for you and me what we could never, ever, ever do by ourselves, including pulling ourselves up by our bootstraps. God's law levels the playing field. And the Sermon on the Mount's the best place to go to look for that. You know, when you think you're doing okay, when you think you're pulling it off, when you think you're actually getting it done, you know what? I'm a pretty good person. I'm not perfect. Nobody's perfect. But I'm a lot better than I used to be. And we think that somehow, someway, that merits God's favor. As Christian people, that merits God's favor. You know, when, when I'm having a good spiritual day, God loves me a lot. And when I'm having a bad spiritual day, God loves me less. And this whole thing is God's affection for me, his approval of me, my standing with him is ultimately grounded in what I do and how I perform. It's not true, okay? <laughs> it's just fundamentally false. And I'm, I'm a pastor and I live on the front lines and I, I work with sinners, and I've discovered that there are way too many people inside the church who actually believe about God that their relationship to him is ultimately anchored in how they perform. And Jesus becomes eclipsed in the process. It's no longer about Jesus and what he's done. It's no longer about living life as Christian people under a banner that reads, it is finished. That's not what it's about anymore. It's not about Jesus. He know, he's not the hero anymore. He got us in. Thank you, Jesus. I, I'll take it from here. And even though many of us probably wouldn't say we believe that, if you begin to examine your life, you begin to realize that on a functional level, on a functional level, you really do relate to God based on how you're doing. You feel like you're entitled to good things from God when you're doing good. And you feel like you deserve bad things from God when you're doing bad. 
and Jesus gets removed from the center and replaced by us. And that kind of perspective leads to absolute bondage. And Jesus said in Luke chapter 4, I have come. He gives us his personal mission statement in Luke chapter 4 and says, I have come to set the captives free. And most people inside the church, forget people outside the church, okay? I'm talking about people inside the church live in bondage to a performance mentality when it comes to God. Terribly narcissistic. Um, they, as I said, they justify their spiritual navel-gazing by saying, well, this is what God wants us to do. He wants me to focus on me. He wants me to take my eyes off of Christ, the author and perfecter of our faith, to focus on me. He wants me to do that. God's honored when I do that. And you wonder why you're sinking. Listen, the truest measure of Christian growth is when we stop spiritually rationalizing the reasons we're taking our eyes off of Jesus to focus on ourselves. This is the way many of us think, okay? It's the way I think. Um, the symbol, the central symbol of the Christian faith at the beginning of our Christian life is the cross. But somewhere along the way, after we become Christians, the symbol changes from a cross to a ladder. It's all about God in Christ coming down that gets us in. It's descending one-way love. But then what keeps us in is our ability and our capacity to climb the ladder. And the cross gets replaced by a ladder. And I have met way too many professing Christians who have crashed and burned, who have actually left the church because they say, if this whole thing's right, I mean, I can pretend for a long period of time. You know, if it, I can actually get people believing that I'm pulling it off. I might actually be able to convince myself that I'm pulling it off for a period of time. But at some point, you crash and you burn, and I see it all the time. All the time. Professing Christians who crash and burn because somewhere along the way, They've come to believe that this whole thing's riding on them. That God's love and God's affection and God's favor and God's acceptance and God's approval and the validation of our existence and our worth and our value and all of those things are riding on us. And Jesus says, Pharisees, I curse you for putting burden after burden after burden on weak shoulders. And then he turns around and says, come to me, all ye who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. I have paid it all. This whole thing is riding on what I have come to do, not what you do. The biggest difference between the practical effect of sin and the practical effect of the gospel is that sin turns us inward and the gospel turns us outward. That's the difference. And Martin Luther, huge hero of mine, picked up on this problem in the Reformation, and he actually argued that sin, he defined sin as mankind turned in on himself, bent inwards, narcissistic, engaged in constant self-salvation projects. And he wasn't talking 
necessarily of people outside the church. He's talking about people inside the church. We might say with great conviction, I believe that Jesus is my Savior and my Lord, that all of my works are as filthy rags, and that I was dead and God has made me alive. We, might, we can say that theologically, we can say that cognitively, but functionally, you and me are looking to a thousand things smaller than Jesus each and every day to validate our existence, to make us feel like life is worth living, to invest our lives with worth and value and meaning and significance. For some, it's relationships. For some, it's pleasing your parents. For some, it's trying to please God. For some, it's, you know, excelling. For some, it's a dream. Maybe what's giving your life worth and value and meaning right now is some far-off dream that you're living your life to attain because if you can attain to that dream, you'll finally be someone. If people will notice you, if, they'll think, if they think you're beautiful, if they think you're smart, if you gain the approval and the acceptance of those around you, you'll finally matter. You'll finally count you won't be a nobody. And you can be a Christian and struggle with that each and every day, as I do, okay? I mean, this is, you don't grow past this, which is why we never, ever, ever, as I said in my prayer before, we never, ever outgrow our need for the gospel, ever. Charles Spurgeon said that Sin, I mean, the gospel is the, has always been the only antidote to sin. And since we never leave off sinning, we can never leave the gospel, ever. We never, we never need more than the gospel. We always need more of the gospel, always. The gospel is not simply for people outside the church. It's for people like you and me. Martin Luther, another great quote by Luther said, I have to preach the gospel to myself every day because I forget it every day. I go from trusting in Christ as my Savior to looking to a thousand things infinitely smaller than Jesus to save me on a regular basis, to justify me and all of those things. So any version of the gospel that encourages you to think about yourself is detrimental to your faith. <laughs> Whether it's your failures or your successes, your good works or your bad works, your strengths or your weaknesses, your obedience or your disobedience... And ironically, this is what I've discovered, the more I focus on my need to get better, the worse I actually get. I become neurotic. I become self-absorbed. Preoccupation with my performance over Christ's performance for me actually hinders my growth because it makes me increasingly self-centered and morbidly introspective. And that's exactly the opposite of the way the Bible describes sanctification. <laughs> I mean, John the Baptist describes the sanctification process perfectly when his jealous disciples come to him and say, this guy Jesus is getting more attention than you are. And what does he say? He must increase. I must decrease. Christian growth is never upward. It's downward. Always. Sanctification, here's, here's the best definition of sanctification I can come up with. Sanctification is forgetting about yourself, okay? That's when you really know you're growing. 
When we spend more time thinking about ourselves and how we're doing than we do about Jesus and what he's done, we begin to shrink. I like the way one writer put it so good. He said, the good seed cannot flourish when it is repeatedly dug up for the purpose of examining its growth. <laughs> I mean, think about that. It makes total sense, doesn't it? I mean, you, you wouldn't go outside and plant a seed, okay, and every 10 minutes go dig it up to see if it's growing or not. And that's the way many of us live our Christian lives. We're just digging and digging and digging and digging, and we keep digging and digging and digging and digging. How are we doing? Are we doing it right or not? Are we getting it done? You know, is God happy with me today because I read my devotions for 30 minutes? Is he more happy with me today than he was yesterday because I didn't read my devotions at all or I only read it for 15 minutes? As if justification was by devotions alone, okay? Now, when God saves you and he raises you from death to life and he enlarges your heart and gives you new affections, you... You, you run to God. You start running toward the things that you used to run away from. You start running away from the things you used to run toward. And he gives you a hunger and a thirst for his word and for intimacy with him through prayer and all of those things. But that never becomes the focus of the Christian faith. Jesus is. Always has been. Always will be. So contrary to what we have typically heard and been enslaved by, Christian growth, listen to me, Gosh, I want the church to get this so bad. Christian growth is not, I'm becoming stronger and stronger and more and more competent every day. Christian growth is, I'm becoming increasingly aware of just how weak and incompetent I am and how strong and competent Jesus continues to be for me. Big Big difference. That alone will protect you from thinking that you grow out of desperate, desperation. You never grow beyond desperation, ever. And any view of the Christian life that has you believing that Christian growth is I'm becoming stronger and stronger and more and more competent every day is latter version. Cross version is I'm becoming increasingly aware of just how weak and incompetent I am and how strong and competent Jesus continues to be for me. In my place condemned, he stood and sealed my pardon with his blood. Hallelujah. What a savior. So spiritual maturity is not marked by our growing independent fitness. Rather, it's marked by our growing dependence on Christ's fitness for us. Remember the apostle Paul at the end of his life, planted churches, people get saved Okay, I mean, Apostle Paul did more for God's kingdom than all of us put together. Okay, I mean, he wrote half the Bible, all right, or New Testament. Um, and at the end of his life, this is what he said about himself. I'm the least of all the saints, and I'm the worst guy that I know. And what's so interesting to me is that Paul's ability to freely admit his lack of sanctification is what demonstrated just how sanctified he was. <laughs> that's the paradox. That's the, that's the irony for Paul's spiritual growth is realizing how utterly dependent we are on Christ's cross and mercy. It's not arriving at some point where we need Jesus less because we're getting better and better. That's not what it is. And that's what you believe. Because that's what I believe. Because we're self-centered. 
We're curved in on ourselves. We have this pervasive disease inside that continually shouts, it's all about you. And even when we become Christians, remaining sin continually tries to convince us it's all about you. We just have Christian versions of it now. Okay, now it's, it's all about you and how you perform. God's love for you is ultimately dependent on how you do, not on what Christ has done for you. Go read Screwtape Letters by C.S. Lewis, a series of letters that a senior devil writes to a devil in training to try to distract a young convert. I mean, this is the kind of thing. It's not overt. It's not explicit. It's, you're a Christian now. Don't you want to grow? Don't you want to please and honor God? Well, just focus on yourself every day and how you're doing, and that will please God. And in the process, we ignore the need to fix our eyes on Christ. Fix our eyes on Christ, the author and perfecter of our faith. So this is the deal. It's not that we don't believe in the need to get better or the need to improve, but this is how it's defined biblically. When we stop narcissistically focusing on our need to get better, that is what it means to get better, <laughs> okay? When we stop obsessing over our need to improve, that's what the Bible means by improvement. It's not, I need Jesus less and less because I'm getting better and better and stronger and stronger. The gospel frees us from ourselves. It announces that this whole thing is about Jesus. The good news is the announcement of his victory for us, not our victorious Christian life. The gospel declares that God's final word over Christians has already been spoken, paid in full. So that you do now live, if you are in Christ, you live under a banner that reads, it is finished. And now we can live in a posture of perpetual, perpetual confidence because we know that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. As was read earlier, nothing can separate us from the love of God. If we are in Christ, your good days don't make God love you more and your bad days don't make God love you less because if this thing were riding on your performance, if this thing were riding on my performance, we'd all be in big trouble. Thankfully, this whole thing is riding on Christ's substitutionary performance for us. Jesus said, and I'll close with this, I did not come to abolish the law. I came to fulfill it. And that means this, you and I, if we're Christians, are not saved apart from the law. We are saved in Christ who perfectly kept the law for us. And since Jesus met all of God's holy conditions, our relationship to God can now be wholly unconditional. And that's good news. Good news that we never, ever, ever grow out of. Let's pray together.